0: the trenches everyday cause i stay on my grind if they hate the element makers, they won't stop my shine see me running to that money i just won't lose mine no i don't waste no time no i don't waste no time whoa whoa
1: i don't waste no time welcome back in the feed your brain podcast my name is max and today we have another guest after we have had, um, no interviews the last couple of weeks because I had single episodes that, um, delivered something to the podcast. But now there's a, another great guest back in the show, um, named Andrew McGarity, um, founder of Thrivers, if I pronounce it correctly, um, that generally, um, and we're going to deep dive into it a little bit more, but generally enabled digital online learning in American K-12 schools. Uh, K-12 schools might also be a word that a lot of Germans and Europeans might not know, but uh, maybe we can deep dive on it as well. But generally, since I'm a very big fan of education and since I believe that education uh, has to be changed in some way, I think enabling digital school learning is a great chance and um, to talk about it. And uh, the company was sold in 2015. Um, Furthermore, Andrew, uh, maybe for all the listeners, it's also an interesting step before that. Um, He was the protocol visits officer and was responsible for generally planning and executing visits to the United States, uh, to the President of the United States, so um, got to know the Queen Elizabeth and the President of China, so uh, probably lots of uh, stories there as well, and uh, studied in Cape Town uh, before that, which is also quite cool because I also more or less lived close to Cape Town, um, and um, yeah, to start off, maybe also thanks to Jan Toden, who connected us in a great way, um, and welcome, Andrew, to the show. show. Good to have you on board.
2: (laughs) Thanks. Great to be here.
1: Right, a very long intro. I hope it was not too long. Um,
2: <laughs> I think you oversold okay. me. That's the problem.
1: <laughs> uh, I'm sure you can. I'm sure you can manage it with all your experience. <laughs> no, but uh, cool to have to you. Yeah cool to have you on board um i mean generally cape town uh, was something that uh, i wanted to talk about first because i i love south africa and i'm sure you also did maybe um you can uh, you can tell a little bit about to the listeners why you actually chose cape town and how you liked it because i always tell the people how i liked it and maybe you can uh, sure. agree
2: <laughs> yeah i feel like cape town's largely an undiscovered jewel uh, in a lot of ways in fact we are going back next month we love it so much uh for with the whole family no, it's really, really fantastic. So during that job that you referenced earlier with the White House, I traveled an awful lot, I think, to some forty odd countries. And I think Cape Town by far is the most beautiful place that I that I visited. Uh and just just a dynamic place with uh I mean the people themselves are very dynamic uh mm-hmm. and a beautiful people and a very diverse group of people uh that are, are are there coexisting together, living together. So that's interesting on its own merits. But I think Just the the beauty of the landscape with the mountains, the the vineyards, which is I think where you were, uh, and the ocean. It just create and the climate itself is very very um, uh, it's it's just a great place to be. So we we enjoyed it, and I think for for me the reason we chose South Africa to answer your question was I was I was getting a master's at the University of Cape Town, um, Mm -hmm. and I was looking to so just having come from the government, I was looking to understand the impact of foreign aid. The U.S. is, a, mm-hmm. I guess, the largest con- uh, contributor to foreign aid to South Africa and, of course, the world. So I was looking to see the political and economic development that was based on that foreign aid. So I was trying to create a correlation or, lack of, or, or discover a lack of correlation between uh, foreign aid and uh, political and economic development. So South Africa was a great place to do that. The U.S. had just implemented a whole brand new program in South Africa and the southern cone of Africa mm-hmm. at large. So it was a great opportunity for me to go and and have a sell, uh, a developing world perspective and write that dissertation um, kind of in the mix. So that's why I chose South Africa, and the beauty of South Africa was a byproduct.
1: <laughs> that's great. I mean, that's exactly what I felt as well. A good friend of mine is actually also starting to go deeper into the development economics. Maybe also invest help. Companies in Africa in general to further develop themselves and also to further develop in the continent. So I think that's a very interesting topic. I think you also uh, studied international relations, if I'm not mistaken, right?
2: I did indeed. So that, that, um, really that role in DC was a diplomatic role. So we had, we were kind of the frontline diplomats for a foreign visitor, uh, Chancellor, mm-hmm. Chancellor Merkel included. So we had her visit several times, uh, during the Bush administration. Uh, so really it was, um, it was an interesting place to be. You were really the frontline conversation um, diplomatically and logistically, too. Um, mm-hmm. So that, that was fascinating. Right. So just a lot of perspectives across a lot of um, leaders. And mm-hmm. uh, so I, I uh, it was an opportunity to press into that that as well. And and international relations was was I feel like the right pick for me and allowed me to write that paper that I wanted to write as well.
1: That's great. Where did, uh, what did you write about, actually?
2: Yeah. So there is a new program uh, that the Bush administration had started uh called the millennium challenge corporation Mm
0: -hmm. and it was
2: basically a new framework a new paradigm by which they are distributing foreign aid Mm um basically more more kind of market driven so a lot Mm -hmm. of checks and balances in place and really expected market reforms uh and institutional reforms that came along with that aid uh so i for me it was just a chance to really uh see if that was working so uh, really, I I, I tried to, to tie the correlation between the Millennium Challenge Corporate, Challenge Corporation's uh, aid distribution to political and economic development. So that was th- that was the crux of the paper.
1: That's super interesting. Um, I think uh, just to see the correlation actually and to analyze it might be super interesting. Would love to read it. Um, yeah. Generally, I mean. That's a good step, I think, a good start into your career now. But um, also from a personal perspective, I think you've probably learned a lot from, of course, being in the White House, but also mixing it with seeing a country that is still... Um, yeah, v- at the very beginning, I would say uh, of a good development. Of course, Cape Town is quite developed, but there are other regions in South Africa, in Africa, um, that that need to take big steps uh, to to be close to America or Germany um, or different countries. And I think it's great yeah. to be part of it and to actually um, build it. And I think that's also probably the reason uh, I could imagine we're gonna I'm gonna ask that later again um, how how you actually got into the whole education system. But maybe to start off with the White House, because I think that's a very cool story that you uh, could tell. Um, what was your role? Like Maybe you can explain a little bit how did this whole thing got to happen and maybe, maybe also reverse engineer what you did at the, at the last step and uh, how it actually came to be where you were.
2: Sure. So I was a White House Protocol Officer, was the title.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, and that job does really three primary things. One, it coordinates all aspects of a foreign leader's visit to the United States particularly when they visit the White House or, um, or, or if it's a state visit, for example, so when there's a government interactions. Um, so, for example, Chancellor Merkel visited many times and, of course, continues to visit many times to the U.S. Uh, for her, you know, the, Germany's prominence in the, in the global economy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, really it begins with a, uh, a conversation uh, with me and the embassy, what the embassy of Germany, for example, in this case, uh, hopes to accomplish and what the White House hopes to see out of the visit. So you're kind of on the the front lines of plans. And of course, you communicate with the White House and, uh, you know, frequently during those plans. And then you actually help execute the visit. So you work with secret service, you work with the embassy, you work with um, the foreign visitors detail uh, to coordinate all aspects of the visit. So you kind of you kind of the the fulcrum in the middle that kind of makes it all turn and and, uh, you're kind of the front line of uh, of solving all problems that that surface during the visit, too. So you're really that person who makes the visit go strong, uh, go well, uh, and you have strong connections with the embassy mm-hmm. and uh, kind of make sure that it all goes well for diplomatic reasons. and Many others, of course, so that's, <laughs> that's the primary the primary role is to coordinate those visits to the, uh when foreign leaders visit the United States. Uh, also, you you uh, you you travel with the U.S. president when he travels abroad and d- do some of those oh, really? similar things. So mm-hmm. whenever the president would travel, he would take us with them to do some of those same things in the foreign country but obviously mm-hmm. um, kind of opposite of the scenario in the U.S. Uh, and then thirdly, we would take what we call presidential delegations. So This is a ceremonial event around the world that mm-hmm. the president has chosen not to attend, but appoints a cabinet member or former president to travel on his behalf. So, um, you know, maybe it's inauguration in uh, in Benin, or maybe it's a, uh, a ceremonial event, an anniversary, uh, or maybe it's the king's birthday in Thailand, you name it. <laughs> uh, we would often send out a delegation, and I would lead and kind of coordinate and execute those delegations abroad as well.
1: Interesting. That's um, I think that's incredible to get insights from. I think every United every president of the United States has to be some leader in, in some regard to to build a a system like that and to actually manage it. So I think that's great to to have an insight here. Maybe just to to clarify some processes. Um, did you actually join the president? I, so you actually were responsible for Bush and Obama, or uh, how was the transition? I, I was
2: only totally there during the Bush administration, uh, and uh, I could have stayed, but we chose to to go pursue that master's at uh, in Cape Town at the time, um, mm-hmm. and we were kind of exhausted at the end. Of the <laughs> As you can imagine, a lot of travel and yeah. a lot of uh, high-stakes visits, so it was just a good opportunity. The change in administrations was a good opportunity for us to, to move on and uh, create a new chapter.
1: Right. And like, did you join the plane that um, that Bush in that regard also joined? Uh, how was it called again? The American? Uh, oh, Air Force One. American, Air Force One. So you joined the Air Force One regularly then? Or how was, Cor- how was the correct. process there?
2: Yep. So we traveled right there, um, sometimes on the backup plane, sometimes in Air Force One. Um, uh, the president takes a large entourage with him, as you can imagine, when he travels, <laughs> um, uh, unlike the rest of the world, which has a much lighter footprint when they travel. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, we were we were right in the mix. Uh, part of our role was to um, just facilitate the interaction between the leaders um, and uh, and work with the, our, the the protocol office in the country that we were visiting to do mm-hmm. a lot of the, the protocol type activities. Um, so you were kind of that main contact uh, that uh, that coordinated with the political or the um, protocol office rather in the foreign country.
1: That's interesting. Um, and what what did you take from like? How close were you actually with Bush? Like, did you talk to him regularly to discuss the political goals of a meeting, let's say with Merkel, for example, or was it more in the broad way that you were working in the background and giving information?
2: Yeah, so uh, largely the the policy conversations happened with, you know, the National Security Council or, or the uh, the State Department entity that is kind of on the front lines, maybe the, the assistant secretary or whatnot. So those policy conversations happened there. Um my role is really to help execute the the actual visit, so the, mm-hmm. kind of the logistics or um, planning the visit. You know what elements went into the visit. So every time I spoke to the president, it was providing direction or providing um, context what was about mm-hmm. to happen right before it. before it happened. So, for example, if uh, the press conference ended, for example, uh, between the two leaders, um, say at Camp Camp David, which is our presidential retreat, we would. Mm-hmm provide direction on, you know, what helicopter to get onto or what car to jump into or what would happen next or um, provide direction around uh, the basic elements of the visit and help help kind of execute and breeze the skids when it came to actually the interaction between the leaders.
1: Well, that's um, it's incredible. I mean, uh, I'm, I'm asking and I'm sure you have probably um, told the story a bunch of times to different Family members, uh, just guys from your, from your friendship circle. But I think especially for people in Europe, um, we always wonder how processes in a, uh, let's say in a country like the United States actually happen. So uh, thank you for actually, um, sharing it a little bit. Um, I think what could be interesting here from, from your learnings and also to also, um, yeah, jump into the next topic more or less. But I think, um, to keep, to keep on hold one thing here is time management. You have seen how a how a leader in the United States, how the president of the United States has to be organized to actually fulfill every mission that he or she has, and in that in this case um, Bush had. Um, but you also needed to be very con- cautious about the time management that you uh, give over to him. So you uh, more or less uh, organized the calendar uh, in some regard as well uh, or had a look at it. What did you learn for yourself but also in regards to um, managing such a uh, yeah, such a management team around President Bush? What did you learn about time management, about efficiency that you maybe could share to, to the audience?
2: Sure, well first of all, we lack the German precision when it comes to these <laughs> things. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, no, I think so, the President had a large staff supporting him um, and a lot of kind of cogs in the operation. So part of it was uh, making progress on your components you know, in, in, a, in a, feasible time feasible So a lot of, a lot of voices at the table, a lot of people involved. Um, and we, in a lot of cases, I found myself representing the embassy to the white house and advocating mm-hmm. for, for what the embassy wanted, because they had no voice apart from, apart from me, um, uh, and some elements in the state department. But when it came to, to some elements uh, really pertaining to the visit, I found myself advocating for what the embassy wanted, which was probably under, um, understated in a lot of in a lot of places so Mm
0: -hmm.
2: so in terms of efficiency yeah i think and and this is true in business too large organizations uh come with a lot of bureaucracy often they're navigating Mm -hmm. to navigate that bureaucracy and um even be willing to get a little messy uh and and kind of uh maneuver the bureaucracy in a certain way
0: Mm
2: -hmm. Uh, learning those kind of uh ways to do that which just takes time um, I, I felt like helped me make progress quicker um, in, in the process. So, yeah, I think not being so, for me, uh, the government wants you to, to follow very rigid rules. Mm-hmm. Uh, so me trying to take those rigid lines and blur them a little bit was helpful to me to make progress. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, it, and it took that a lot of times um, uh, to do that. So, yeah, I think which navigating bureaucracy is, is, is a challenge.
1: Which Which actually, what you just said seems to be, like you always had some sort of entrepreneurial spirit, right? I mean, thinking a little bit out of the box and thinking, or um, maybe diversifying the process as it's usually done and thinking about a better solution or a faster solution is something that I have throughout all the interviews always recognized by good and interesting founders. So I think I can see some synergies here why you probably started a startup uh, sooner than later. Sure. Do you like coming? A lot of people, a friend of mine who's also a quite um, well known entrepreneur in Germany, he just told me that a lot of times when people jump into, um, yeah, let's say solid corporations, and I would call the president uh, management maybe a solid corporation because sure. of the processes that are clearly defined. Um, he told me once that oftentimes when people come out of those corporations, people don't have a startup mindset anymore. They are very. Um, yeah, they are thinking in one box that is being delivered in, in those atmospheres where startup and dynamics and speed is not really relevant. How, how did you overcome being in that department and then jumping to, a, to another field that is completely different from the dynamics and the speed?
2: Sure. So we, we thought of, well, I think about it for myself as really a, a, a chapter. So we, this opportunity in Washington just came up. I started as an intern at the White House early, uh, mm-hmm. And it and evolved into that opportunity. Um, uh, and I, I and then we kind of moved on from there. So I feel like you know, ideation was is a big theme in my life. I feel like I I was always the idea guy in the room. You probably are, too. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really in, enjoyed the ideation process in all in all facets, really, of my career, uh, both political and, and now. So I feel like it was it was rather easy for me um, and I always had the mindset that that job at the White House was temporary. Because mm-hmm. we always knew we would move on at some point. I never wanted to be a lifelong government employee. Mm-hmm. Um, probably some of the reasons that you know entrepreneurs you know leave and start things in the first place. Mm-hmm. So um, for us, uh, what you just described was, was not a challenge, and it was always a mindset to to always go and do and accomplish something else in the mm-hmm. business world. So um, that tendency, I did not fight as much because I kind of had a preset mind frame that we were <laughs> we were going to go do something. Um, hopefully <laughs> equally as big um, as those, those uh, items in the White House.
1: Got it. And that was, so you have always felt that entrepreneurship could be something that you want to, you want to approach or did was it more like you saw a concrete problem or a concrete issue in the education system? That's the reason why you jumped on it because like your personal why told you to actually pursue uh, something in that field or was it always like you have always been entrepreneurial in some ways?
2: Yeah, I think even early, you know, entrepreneurship has not been as big of a theme as mm. it is now, as it was in the past. Right. So I, sure, I feel like, no. you know, so I, I feel like those themes didn't bubble up and, and kind of really identifying it as an entrepreneur spirit it probably didn't happen mm-hmm. to me until probably when I began Thrivus really kind of started to investigate. So for me, I always had an appetite for really kind of big things and really um, taking on big challenges. So the white house coordinating business like that and, traveling abroad and having exposure at the highest levels with world leaders felt big Mm -hmm. and fulfilling. Um, After leaving that, um, Mm -hmm. I was in search for that next big kind of meaningful uh, contribution Mm -hmm. to whether business or or education. Education Mm -hmm. felt like there's a, there's a lot of room for improvement. uh, I think, which, you know, you noted earlier in your, in your podcast and that we can make a lot of progress. And it was a meaningful market that we could, could approach with a, a, a solid solution. So,
1: that's, uh, that's interesting because I also had like one uh, one education leader from Germany um, who's doing math videos online. Um, maybe it's also cool to connect with you maybe once sure. at a time. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's quite big. He has like 240 million I- views on YouTube because of like Fantastic. little snippets. That's yeah. great. But he what he t- told is that it's sometimes people don't want to go into the education field because it feels so um, blurry and people just don't understand how they can jump into a a system like the education system, which is so ruled by the government and which is defined by the government in Germany, maybe even more than in the States, because you have a lot of private schools as well, which we don't have in in the masses. But um, generally, people are very scared of the system. What was your thought when you when you when you looked at the idea of um, making digital content uh, accessible in schools? How was your thinking? Okay, how do I reach how do I reach good uh, good schools that actually want to work with me? You also defined with K twelve schools, which maybe you can define later. Um, how was your your thoughts, and What would you recommend um, giving on in this, this in education field?
2: Sure, you're absolutely right. So um, education, especially K twelve education, which I guess the equivalent would be primary education in in Germany, I think. Uh,
0: okay. Um, mm-hmm.
2: So the uh, that kind of uh, sector of the education. Um, kind of paradigm in the United States is a very tough market. So um, we knew that uh, we just thought we had a innovation that was so much better than what was currently being used that we mm-hmm. might be able to gain traction. Um, and we were still skeptical because I mean, long sales cycles and things like that and, and, mm-hmm. and K-12 education and maybe education in general, uh, we knew it'd be a challenge. So we, the the vision for Thrivest, um, which is the name of the company that we started, Mm-hmm. Uh, was really about connecting learning and learning activities with student performance so there there was there was a lot of educational tools being used in the classroom with very little understanding of what's happening you know what's what's working what's not working so we mm-hmm. felt like that was a big enough problem and an untapped kind of perspective in education mm-hmm. that we could we can make a, a, a contribution that would, would be meaningful enough to turn heads. So that's why, um, it, cause it, it is overwhelming thinking about the larger market and, the I'm um, the, I mean, there's people in education that have been there for, you know, 70 years, you know, 60 yeah. years, 50 years. I mean, these are, these are lo- long time ingrained institutions who are resistant mm-hmm. to change. So, um, so, yes, yeah, so we, we were fearful and uh, we, we approached K-12 with trepidation. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, least. And, um, and that's why we, for a long time, before we raised capital for Thrivist, we really did a lot of work and self-funded to get us to a point where um, investors would be interested enough with all the context and all the stigmas that surrounded K-12 education.
1: Mm-hmm. They would
2: still be willing to jump in with us.
1: But um, to clarify the product itself, you actually made it possible for teachers to identify content um, in a digital way and to, um, uh, to select the right content for the right class at the right moment. Was that more or less the summary of, of your product?
2: So it's a bit larger than content, just content. So mm-hmm. these districts are using lots of different types of tools. Just in, our, just in our professional lives, we use different types of tools to accomplish different things. Well, there's in education, there's there's content, yes, but there's also assessments, the so quizzing, for example. There's also, mm-hmm. um, you know, other interactive learning activities that take place. Uh, then there's there's uh, listening, there's you know, playing games. You know, you're learning through all these mm-hmm. different types of activities. But there is no common data feed that was collecting all that data mm-hmm. uh, and then providing kind of performance metrics uh, around Mm -hmm. what's working, what's not working across content um, assessments and other types of other learning tools in the classroom. So, Mm -hmm. and and the the real reason we, we kind of identified that. So the, there's a new data standard that came out not Mm -hmm. to get too wonky, but there was a new data standard that came out that allowed Mm -hmm. us to collect all this data. So it was just a, it was mind, mind boggling that we can now collect all this data from these various tools. That was Mm -hmm. exciting to us, and and it felt like that was the right place to start.
1: Oh, and then you wanna you wanted to share it on a on a like national basis to to let every teacher know what's out there and how to use it correctly.
2: Right. So, I think the macro themes, yes, to a to an entire district or to an entire state is very interesting. Mm -hmm. But even down to the individual level, so we could allow more personalized learning based on that data. So you could Mm -hmm. you could personalize the learning in a way. Using that data that you couldn't before, that was and and just just basically for that teacher teacher student relationship to inform that relationship, inform that learning experience with mm-hmm. data was, was really interesting to us as well.
1: Got it. Interesting. Great. I mean, uh, personalizing and individualizing uh, information between the teacher and uh, and the students has become insanely popular here in Europe as well. You've probably noticed it, but there aren't really like good and efficient steps uh, into the right direction to make it possible. So I think um, enabling every teacher to to over to see data um, and to to use it in a in a correct and individual way uh, could also be very very efficient to to Germany. Maybe you should also expand your um, your business to other locations than just the United States. <laughs>
2: no, I think you know, I agree. Uh, Germany is very forward thinking on some of these themes, personalized learning included. And mm-hmm. um, there's been a couple of companies that popped up who, who are doing now what we were doing earlier, particularly mm-hmm. uh, Germany. So I think yeah, it's it would be a great great ground for for innovation there in Germany as well.
1: Right, right. Education is such a great topic, and it's uh, there can be so much things happening that it, I think uh, there aren't enough startups in that field. Um, maybe sure. also to cover to cover a little bit of tech because I, I love the tech, I love digital, as you know. Um, how was, um, how was how was your technical start back then like uh, how did you how did you uh, overcome the, the problem of resources Did you have a technical founder? Um, how was your approach back then?
2: So uh, I am not a technical founder so I, I was not the guy who was who was writing the code. Um, it just so happens my co-founder and my brother um, he owns a software development company so it allowed us All right. to very cheaply and, and safely, Develop a what we call it, a minimal viable product, an MVP, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. we could get out there and and uh, kind of get in front of school mm-hmm. districts and understand how uh, how they perceive the product and what was working and what was not working about the product and what kind of kind of kind of put our finger on what the market how the market perceived the product uh, mm-hmm. and what we learned is and I think a lot of startups have this problem is we are a little bit early to the scene mm-hmm. for this analytics solution. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, at that point, we really expanded our, our kind of scope uh, mm-hmm. to kind of our current solution. Um, and, and I think no, no startup probably should, should expand their scope <laughs> in the way that we did. <laughs> it sound, it's very dangerous. But um, we had a software <laughs> development company at our, at, our, at our doorstep, so willing to do the work for us. So we actually built the product um, that we have currently where students learn on that platform as well.
0: Mm-hmm. So
2: not only are we collecting the data. Um, because frankly, a lot of districts tools that they were, that they were using had not adopted that standard yet. So mm-hmm. we said, you know, shoot, we'll just build it ourselves. So we did, we built the, the kind of teaching and learning tool for mm-hmm. all that interaction that teachers and students have online. We actually built that for a district that provided the data that we wanted to collect, uh, that kind of granular learning data, mm-hmm. um, So, uh, we really became a much broader solution quite quickly. Um, uh, and we, we within a year could support a full digital initiative in a school Mm -hmm. district. So that, that was, that was interesting to us that, um, you know, when the market wasn't sending us the data that we wanted or the school districts were not using tools that was sending us the data that we wanted. Um, Mm -hmm. we, uh, we took the Elon Musk approach and just built it
0: ourselves. (laughs) Um, uh, uh,
2: that was uh but, but that was good I think that was it broaden our appeal among school districts we are not just this niche pool that collected data we could mm-hmm. really we could support them in many many ways and we could serve content producers publishers in ways that we couldn't before so that that opened up a whole new um, uh, kind of market for us and I think mm-hmm. that's the reason we got we we really entertained the acquisition in 2017 was for that reason that um, it, it it opened the market even more and allowed us to serve publishers in ways that we couldn't before and not mm-hmm. just school districts.
1: I love the approach of expanding the current scope um, when you feel that the product or the, the market is not ready yet for the product, because that's something that a lot of people uh, and founders struggle with. Um, because, of course, founders are generally maybe a little bit earlier than later because they develop an innovation that is rather um, too, too big uh, than too small um, in most cases. What do you think? What would you give forward here? Because I'm sure a lot of people struggle with it. They, that, that they develop a product where the market is not ready yet. Do you, would you always recommend or would you generally recommend to then open the scope? Or would you rather recommend to wait a couple of months to, or to, to, to build a lot of education systems with companies, for example, to educate them on how the product can help? Uh, What have you learned from talking to other founders and also from your own startup uh, in that regard? Um, What would you do as a, as a founder now?
2: Sure. And I think there's been a lot of great writing about this, but I would encourage founders to be open to the idea or to the notion that you have not correctly identified the pressure point of the opportunity. So, Mm -hmm. when I say pressure point of the opportunity, uh, that was us exactly. So, although districts were hungry for this solution, Mm -hmm. they were probably about five years from actually being able to actually use the solution. So, but at the same time, um, there's a very uh, very poor learning experience that was happening on the current solutions. Mm-hmm. So we, we saw an opportunity to not only connect learning with student performance, but also improve the learning experience in general. So mm-hmm. the analogy I, I often use is a gaming analogy. So if you- a Gamification if you were, or? You no, know, an actual, like an actual gaming uh, scenario okay. where you're, you're playing a new game, for example. And just to just elaborate how bad the learning experience was in K-12 education. So say you were told you had to play a game but the game was terribly designed and very wonky and uh, had bad icons, bad images, you know. Mm-hmm. Basically, that's what students were. were I would, I would uh, use that analogy to describe the current solutions that were uh, at the time in, in K-12 education. It was just a bad learning experience. and The students were being forced through this bad learning experience, mm-hmm. and uh, it was impacting student performance in the end. So we sought a better. We sought to design and develop a product that provided a better learning experience and captured the data that we wanted to capture at the same time. Mm-hmm. But I, mean, I think that's it. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. You no, know, I'm just. I think that's a That's a scenario. That's a uh, an illustration of I think us being open to uh, not a full pivot when you think mm-hmm. about a pivot, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. but a you know just you know putting our finger on the the uh, the, the pressure point of of an opportunity. In a way that we hadn't initially,
1: which probably only happens or only happens when you start understanding the customer better, right? I mean, if as soon as you start the customer better, as soon as you keep talking and keep understanding the customer, the more insights you get, that could possibly give you a, an insight on where the pressure point could also be.
2: I completely agree. So I, I would consider thirty percent of my job as CEO. 40% of my job as CEO was listening to customers and asking questions of our customers um, mm-hmm. and, and our other partners and, and about the product, about the market, about the trends within the industry. All those things, I think uh, uh, beyond a CEO's job just to create the vision and fund the business, you know, making sure that you're really ingrained in the product and the market uh, mm-hmm. and the perception of your product within the market is really mm-hmm. important uh, and allows you to make those critical Game time decisions, uh, as it pertains to product and and vision as well.
1: Mm-hmm. But, you, but your but your brother <clears throat> was also part of the part of the company, right? So he was a CTO and he was enabled, like he was directly in the structure of your company.
2: Correct. Yep. So he was he was co founder uh, with me and um, played that CTO role. Mm. Um, he he was obviously running a software development company as well. So he was <laughs> he was not as full time as I was. <laughs> um, so uh, you know, fifteen percent of his time was was with us there. Um, but he had a very um, he had lots of folks who were able to help us within within his organization. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, that CTO position was probably shared between him and several other high high level developers that we used um, as well. So
1: got it. And when did you start funding uh, the company?
2: So we spent about a year um, before Thrivus was really Thrivus. Uh, Providing a e-learning solution to uh, a couple of financial firms. Uh, mm-hmm. and that's when I really got interested in the e-learning space. Uh, and then, uh, that's where we really decided to find a market that we could really, uh, could play in a big enough market that we could actually go create a business in. Uh, mm-hmm. and simultaneously we had created, we had met some real thought leaders in the K-12 industry, uh, mm-hmm. who were, who intimately knew the problems in K-12 education. Um, okay. And that could really help us uh, kind of steer the ship. So uh, and I had been in education for a time, but uh, these are really kind of some national thought leaders on online learning and they were hungry to partner with us. So we thought it was just a a neat uh, synergy of opportunities to to have the subject matter experts along with us as we built the product.
1: Interesting. So you, as you very like uh, from a very early point, you looked for thought leaders in the space to give you further directions. But those were not the people who actually invested in the company, right?
2: Correct. No. So these these were, I would call it the, uh, the folks in the field who were hungry Mm -hmm. for change, hungry for uh, you know innovation. So Mm um, they were excited to be along for the ride and to um you know, do research around these topics that we're doing and um. Uh, to write papers and to help districts really came down to really helping school districts Mm
0: -hmm. uh,
2: with their technology, the use of technology in the classroom.
0: Mm
2: -hmm. They were excited for that point from that point. But um, yeah, so so the way that the company really shook up, I was the kind of vision thought leader uh, or the Mm -hmm. vision leader and and the fundraiser. (laughs) Uh, And my brother was the technical skills. um, And then we had the subject matter experts alongside of us to help guide the product and um, our approach to the market.
1: And um, is there something you would want to give forward to um, to early stage founders that are also thinking about um, uh, integrating money into the company to further scale the company? Is there like a certain point where you say okay now it's the time maybe for example if resources are lacking or if uh, the market needs more more sales uh, because you also you also talked earlier about the long sales. Uh, Cycles and that can be very costly for for startups, especially if they don't have much money. How would you how would you solve that problem with money or?
2: Sure. So I, I think first of all, before I I invested a sizable amount of, of personal funds or went to investors to put their capital at risk, I think mm-hmm. I would just make positive that my solution what is um a big enough had big enough differentiators. That it was so compelling that you ought to go and and create and and you know actually enter the market um, mm. because uh, I mean ideas are, are really cheap. You and I both know. I mean anybody mm. can have an idea, but you know having a solution uh, or a a product that is a big enough differentiator, like huge differentiator, night nine day, not just mm-hmm. a little better, but like drastically better, magnitude is better. I think is really important. So just knowing that for yourself and not just kind of. Um, I mean, because it's uh, the market's a messy place, right? You'll get your lunch eaten quickly. Right, <laughs> so I think right. <laughs> um, I think just making sure that um, you have a, a, your solutions better enough is a really getting across that threshold. I think is
0: mm-hmm.
2: I think that notion is undersold in entrepreneurship. You know, it, it sounds so fun to go start something and, and, and just do it. But I think making sure that your magnitude, your product or your solution is magnitude is better is, is really important. So I just make that point just because I think mm-hmm. it's important. Um, so only till we we got to that point did we go uh, start to raise funds uh, and mm-hmm. start to build a kind of a thesis and, and share the vision with the investors um, uh, so that was that was about a year and a half I would say after we kind of started this uh, so we really kind of fleshed it out
1: uh, and, and you were never I'm sorry that I'm interrupting, but I think that could be very interesting here um, but you were never scared that maybe other competitors that are also in the education field, can jump over you more or less and uh, be the quicker one, maybe because they have funds and because they approached investors earlier. Was that a thought that you guys had, which made you thought uh, thought uh, okay, maybe we need to we need to approach investors earlier, or what, were you always patient enough to say we are building the best solution and we can wait one and a half years to to put external money into it?
2: Yeah, no. So I think you know you mentioned earlier that there's kind of a uh, of a lack of interest for startups in K twelve for a lot of reasons, right? So mm. we did not feel the pressure that we were losing an edge from competitors, um, and these the, the entrenched competitors were slow to move in the first place. So okay. um, we did not feel the pressure, probably, which we would feel in other industries. I would I would probably say. Okay. Um,
1: yeah.
2: So we were able to really take our time and flesh out the product and kind of the market in ways that probably couldn't and. Uh, Some other industries and other fields.
1: Lovely. Okay, that's a great, great thought. Uh, Thanks for sharing. Um, I think something that we should definitely cover, which I love, which I also, which was also the big reason why we two get together. I think is because uh, you are definitely way more into the education system than I am. But I'm generally, as a young person, super interested to. Um, to be part of the education um, evolution, I would say, because we are—if we think about the education system nowadays, um, it's still, it's still somehow uh, from the from the 40s, from the 50s. Uh, it's it's not not the education that we want today. And you, with uh, Thrivers, um, when uh, were part of it, and you actually sold your company, and you're still in the company working for it, but you sold it in in for, uh, three years ago, I think. Um, What's your What's your approach now on 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 education, especially after we just talked about your company? What do you think? What is happening currently, and what what should what should happen in the next upcoming three to five years to make um, education more professionalized and more individualized?
2: Sure. So we're in an exciting time in education. Ah. They um I, I would just for context I would say that the K twelve schools in the in the United States anyway are about a decade behind where you think higher ed is and probably where you probably are kind of personally using technology. Mm-hmm. So school, school districts um, are now really kind of embracing technology. There's a new theme called blended learning. So mm-hmm. blended learning is where you're using technology. At least part of the student's time is using online learning, using technology. Uh, and a lot of times you, using it in a self-paced way mm-hmm. to, uh, to um to deliver instruction to to learn so uh there's been a real uptick um there's been initiatives in schools now where they're putting a computer in each child's hand um which sounds simple but those initiatives are expensive you know and it takes time for uh, for each child to have to be given a computer or to bring their own so we're now at a place where online learning is really a feasible idea and a feasible notion um so when you're doing that uh, there are all kinds of, of interesting things that become introduced, right? These ideas of personalized learning, you know, mm-hmm. personalizing the learning to the student, uh, using data to um, personalize that learning and to create adaptive scenarios too. to so adaptive learning is a big, big trend. Um, but I think blending learn blended learning in, in general is a really exciting because we're no longer like you mentioned, since the 1950s, a teacher has been at the front of the room with a, cl- a classroom full of kids with their uh, butts in the seat. Uh, Listening to a student, or listening Mm -hmm. to a teacher, rather. So I think we're we're finally changing that that paradigm, that that pedagogical model, uh, to something that's much more interesting and probably fits in the 21st century. (laughs) Um, So uh, yeah, so it really is an exciting time where school districts are beginning to fund these initiatives and Mm -hmm. um, uh, and to be in the mix. Uh, I think the the new challenge or the current challenge that they're having now is for all these great publishers and all these great content providers are really struggling with this technology shift. So, um, there's been a lot of challenges in getting the content and getting the tools into the classroom mm-hmm. uh, and, and making it accessible. Mm-hmm. So access is a real, a real problem. And there's a lot of technological hurdles that thrives mm-hmm. has been able to solve along the way. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Kind of being the epicenter for all these publishers and other tool providers in the classroom. We've been able to simplify access to their content and to their tools. Mm. Um, and at the same time, send data about those interactions, those learning experiences, as well, has uh, been interesting as well.
1: Great. Um, so I, I, if I, I was just uh, thinking about it actually. I was just talking to um, my nephew a couple of months ago, and they are still using the same books that I used to use, uh, yeah, 10 years ago, uh, yeah, 10, 10 years ago, um, and maybe even more, um, uh, which is terrible. I think, um, I think in 10 years, so much stuff has happened. If you think about Steve Jobs presenting the iPhone in, in 2007, I suppose, um, and what has come actually from, from his presentation onwards. And we are still using the same the same resources, the same content that you describe um, Do you think generally they need just need to be more startups in the field or do you think do you, do you think that companies like those traditional content providers need to um, even go deeper into a digital transformation process to make education possible in those blended learning systems or what's what would your be your, your approach? If you would be sure. the, the president of the United States, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which will not happen. Um, <laughs> the, uh,
2: I will to your earlier point. I was shocked by by really how behind some of our, our school districts were um, when I first joined the kind of industry. I guess seven years ago or so, mm-hmm. um, and I think the same is some are, in part is some is true now. Uh, and I, th- I think it comes down to the funding in a lot of ways. So
0: mm-hmm.
2: I think in business we think about. Um, startups kind of disrupting and and um, uh, going into an open market and, and doing interesting things. Right. I think education is a bit different because government's involved and they're reliant on government funding. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a lot of times it, it changes. You, you walk the, the the thin line between uh, securing government funds to to fund the business mm-hmm. um, and and at the same time kind of push the issue or force the envelope. Towards innovation in, in these districts, um,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and I think also convincing the leaders within within education that mm-hmm. uh, your tool or your solution will make their jobs easier, and at the same time, um, uh, further education and further learning in the classroom. So we, uh, we 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 have kind of taken the approach of kind of pushing the envelope, but also realizing that. It's largely determined by uh, by politically elected leaders on on what exactly that looks like in education. Mm-hmm. Whether they fund you know some of these initiatives, uh, it really comes down to political leaders, school boards, for example, in the United States, mm-hmm. uh, or committees that make some of these funding decisions. Um, uh, and often, they're even from a technology perspective, those political leaders are further behind in terms of technology. Than even these school districts, you know, they're often right. older, older leaders leading these. So anyway, there's it's just a it's an all it's a new challenge altogether in education because you're you're arguing for change at multiple mm-hmm. levels and not just that individual level.
1: Mm-hmm. But generally, what I've exper- experienced is that all people that are somehow involved in the education field, also from the political perspective, are interested in. Um, joining the transformation process because they are so under pressure at the moment because people are, uh, wanting them to, uh, to improve the education system and they don't find the right solutions. So they are under pressure and they are maybe somehow even dependent on, um, yeah, innovation startups that, uh, that help to, to improve the education system. So I think what, what actually, um, what, what comes out of, of you, of, of your statement there is that, um, it's a lot of, there's a lot of encouragement from your side. Uh, motivating people to go into that field and to understand the field better and to to make it happen. I mean, uh, generally, it's about it's it's about the execution and to, uh, about the connections between political leaders and and the startup. And as soon as people have reached it, they can they can they can take big steps uh, in improving everybody's lives and especially the younger generation.
2: No, I completely agree. No, I think there's a there's a huge hunger and a huge uh, demand for innovation and change, especially at the local level and mm-hmm. teachers, especially. Are, are really pushing for these innovations. So that's mm-hmm. exciting. So uh, it's kind of a ground-up, a grassroots approach uh, within a district. But these teachers are demanding innovation, and they are already beginning to use some of these tools, uh, some of them that they've bought themselves, which is really, um, mm-hmm. really interesting that a teacher on a limited salary is willing to, uh, at her own expense, provide a tool to her students mm. because it is kind of the next, next innovation in learning, or it's a new tool that helps them teach better or or students learn better. Uh, So it's really, uh, I think the demand is certainly there. And I think we're finally getting there um, from the United States perspective. Anyway, we're, we're beginning to fund some of these initiatives. Uh, So it is an exciting time.
1: Which is great because you somehow somehow the North pole of, of the world because we in germany definitely take a look at what the states does and you usually are in everything that is related to technology five years in front of us and um, i think what's going to happen in your side on your side is also going to happen in our side sooner or later so thanks for sharing uh, maybe also to to finish it off with a after we have gone into like the education system which i love i think it's a great topic and you are an expert on it um maybe a couple of q and a sessions at the end um i always ask for book recommendations uh that the the interview guest have has so maybe you can um you have three book recommendations to share uh, maybe also in um in in the list so the first one is maybe your most favorite uh, book and the last one or the third one is the, the third favorite book so we would love to hear that
2: Sure. So right now I'm reading a book called The Third Wave by Steve Case. So Steve mm-hmm. Case is uh, the co-founder of AOL. Mm-hmm. Um, he he has started an interesting organization, which really resonated with me, um, called Revolution, uh, mm-hmm. which is a basically a venture capital fund. But he is really focused on um, what he calls the rise of the rest So the rise of the rest. Um, you know, often in the United States, about I think ninety percent of some or some shocking number of venture funds or venture dollars goes to uh, uh, startups that are either in Silicon Valley or in New York um, or you know maybe Chicago one of one of, the, one of those three cities. So being in Nashville, Tennessee, um, which you I are, right? this, which I am, yep. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that that notion surrounding the rise of the rest and you know, venture funds and, and, uh, you know, thought leaders around venture funds, taking a look at some of the really interesting startups that are happening across the middle of the country, I think is, mm-hmm. is exciting. So he's been an advocate of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, just practically speaking, this book that he came out with, the third wave really embraces, um, uh, this idea of partnership, partnering with larger, um, corporations. You and I spoke about this earlier. So, Mm-hmm. Thrive had a lot of success partnering with a large um, content distributor, mm-hmm. uh, and which ultimately um, acquired Thriveist. Um, but that partnership was was really really beneficial, um, and I, I'd encourage all entrepreneurs to really uh, uh, seek out um, uh, ways to partner with large large corporations to accomplish their vision. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's been really successful. So I would say mm-hmm. the book that I that I would recommend is the Third Wave, um, okay, by Steve Case. It's a uh, it's a good read.
1: Do you have two other two, two other ones uh, that you would you want to share? Maybe that you've also read that the, you like, yeah. or one more? What's yeah? Uh, what's more?
2: So I'm a big Wall Street Journal reader, so I read that every day. Um, mm-hmm. There's another book. Um, it doesn't particularly pertain to um, education, but. Um, I have to I have to remember the guy's last name, but uh, there's a book called "The Twelve Rules" um, uh, that I that I'm reading now. It's kind of he's a psychiatrist. Uh, let's say,
1: let me look it up. Sure, that's the the big part of a podcast authenticity. <laughs>
2: <I know. laughs> uh, so Jordan Peterson. So he he is uh, uh, he wrote a book called "Troll uh, Twelve Rules for Life," and um, mm-hmm. it really challenges some of the more fundamental. Um, Uh, notions Mm -hmm. uh, about uh, how we think about the world. So that really is a hobby has, has been impactful um, a lot of ways for me. So I'd recommend it. It's it's uh, 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 he's gained some traction recently, so it's it's
1: been a good read. That's good. I will definitely put them in the show notes for everybody else interested. Um, Second uh, Q&A question would be location, because especially I actually just wrote it down at the at the early stage part of the interview, because I thought you have seen so many different countries. by actually being part of the, uh, the United States president's team, um, but also with your company, um, and with your family, of course, as well. Um, what would be, uh, what's your, your perfect location because, or more, more or less what's a location that you would recommend to everybody seeing it, um, maybe except Cape town, which we, uh, appreciated so well at the beginning.
2: <laughs> sure. So, I mean, there's so many places. Um, so I think, uh, you know, Thailand is just a, a beautiful place. Um, uh-huh. I, I think I, I would, uh, and it's so different, I think, from, um, as you know, from Europe, uh, and obviously from the United States, I -hmm. think, um, you know, Bangkok and, you know, further South, like Phuket is, is a really interesting place to be. And I think I I say a lot of times life's about perspective, but Mm -hmm. I think the developing perspectives, um, in a culture that is so different than yours is really healthy. So I think, Thailand uh, Thailand's a great opportunity to expand perspectives, and uh, I think it, it ends up serving as well as entrepreneurs uh, and business leaders uh, and individuals as well.
1: Great. Cool. Thailand, definitely a great spot. I haven't been there, but uh, many Germans also uh, go there to, to for their vacation such a great country, apparently. Um, time management would be a great topic, I think. Uh, you have lived with one of the busiest people in the world, but you're also uh Brought a startup to an exit, which means that you have probably worked a lot as well and put a lot of effort into it. What would be how's your current time management? Because are there any tips, habits um, that you want to share in regards to time management with tools or just generally things that you have in mind?
2: Sure. So I probably don't have. This is probably not very original, but um, I think making making time for yourself in the morning before your work begins, Mm -hmm. clearing your mind, whatever your whatever your kind of process is, or, or mm-hmm. whatever your, your reflection is, or whether you're reading the Bible or, or whether you're um, just taking a moment for yourself, I think is mm-hmm. really important to clear a mind before the work day begins. Um, and uh, that's been, that's been productive for me because I feel like once once the, once my day begins, it's just back to back hectic. And uh, <laughs> I think, you know, reflecting on earlier kind of uh, thoughts or, um, Principles for the day, I think is is super helpful. Again, not very original, but I think that's a great practice for for any entrepreneur to do, because as an entrepreneur, you know, you're pulled in so many directions. You're solving so many problems and putting out Mm. so many fires um, and making consequential decisions that it's really, really a great practice to have that time in the morning. And it served me served me well.
1: And how do you how do you uh, handle the time? Do you meditate, or do you read the Bible, or what's your approach? I do. So
2: I, I spend most of the time reading the Bible, um, okay, and and, and praying. Uh, I, I, that for me, uh, the Bible uh, has been, uh, you know, God's word for me has been really um, formative uh, in, in all aspects of my life, and I feel like, in a lot of ways, business is an extension of of my walk with God, mm-hmm. and and I really that that is a. Uh, it permeates all aspects of, of life, including business for me. So those biblical principles that, that, uh, that come through, um, like loving God, loving others, you know, you know, serving others has been a real big theme in my life Mm -hmm. and, um, doing things for uh, not out of selfishness really, but to serve others, you know, Christ, Christ served us in so many ways. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, That I think, you know, taking that same approach and serving others, whether it's serving others with your solution uh, Mm -hmm. or just the simple mentality of a a service minded mentality is um, for me has been uh, a real guiding post, a real plumb line for for business and for just personal life.
1: Which is why I even love it more that you are in the podcast, because that's also part of giving and part of giving back, because there are so many stories that you uh, you can share and uh, so many people that are interested. Um, so thanks for sharing. Love um, love that approach. Um, also from like the hectic perspective, how do you handle to-do lists? Is there like a certain a certain frame that you use or a tool uh, to do as Asana or?
2: So I'm a bit old fashioned and I just write them down. <laughs> so I have a okay. list uh, uh, that I've written down to, to what I need to accomplish um, as well. And I think I mean, Slack helps us a lot too. You you might have heard of Slack. So we, our lives, you know, live on Slack for the most part, Uh, and that's been a great tool for us uh, as well. Um, So that communication tool and just a good old fashioned writing it down (laughs) is uh, is the approach I've taken. I'm sure there are great tools out there, but um, I feel like sometimes our lives can get overwhelmed by the variety of tools that are offered to us. Uh So I think um, finding those one or two or three tools that really help you uh, and um, not being pulled in a lot of different directions i can think of dozens of platforms that probably could help me but learning right. those platforms and putting those platforms into use sometimes is more time consuming than it's worth uh, unless you have a real problem that you need to solve and you find the actual tool that solves that problem for me for you um, i feel like it can be a time suck <laughs> a lot of times to uh to find that find various tools and try to imp- incorporate various tools into your into your life so
1: which is great. It uh, comes back, which is great now because at the end of the interview now, we, we close the circle where you mentioned uh, pressure points earlier and uh, finding a pressure point and then use a tool, then uh, it probably makes sense. But otherwise, it might be too time consuming. Um, thanks a lot, Andrew. I really enjoyed it. I think there were so many um, informative, insightful, um, fantastic stories uh, that you shared. And I think um, everybody should definitely check out uh, thrivers and what you guys do at the company it's a great tool and it's a great great service now um as god would say or christ would say to to mm. the people in the k twelve school so definitely thanks for sharing your stories um let's definitely um give everybody the chance to um to find you on the socials but also maybe a couple of last words for you about leadership or whatever is in your mind currently uh would would be great
2: sure so well, thanks for having me max i appreciate it and it's, it's uh, I hope your listeners benefit uh, in some way. Um, so I think from a leadership perspective, I, I go back to that notion of service. I think if you um, if you keep uh, that notion that you're serving others kind of mm-hmm. close, I think that really it really proves out in a lot of ways uh, in business. Um, uh, and you know, at the White House, serving the head of states who came in um, uh, all the way through serving k12 learners has been um, kind of my guiding post. So uh, I mm-hmm. feel like that humble, humble servants attitude is missing in a lot of technology leaders uh, mm-hmm. kind of uh, approaches to business and life mm-hmm. more about, you know, crush the competition or <laughs> whatever, whatever the notion is. I think um, keeping that service mentality, I think, is is different. And I think it's welcomed among uh, uh, customers.
1: Great. And uh, for everybody that wants to connect with you, I think LinkedIn would be the best alternative, right?
2: That'd be great. Yep. Yep. Andrew McGarrity, uh is, is uh, you'd be a, a search for Andrew McGarity would likely find me on, on LinkedIn.
1: Fantastic. Andrew, thanks a lot. Uh, love to chat with you and um, good to have you on board. And uh, let's stay in touch. <laughs> Thank you again.